Would you open your Bible, uh, if you have your own Bible, the one in front of you in the pew to 1 John, uh, the passage we just read together. If you haven't been out the last couple, or the last Sunday night, uh, you would not know that uh, we started to look at this passage then, written by John, a passage that echoes something of the Gospel of John earlier in the New Testament, uh, in its opening. And uh, we looked at the the nature of this apostle and the church to which he's writing or the Christian community to which he's writing. Uh, It's possible on reading 1 John to detect something of the mood of that community, that church to which John writes. I would say it's a mood of uncertainty, prompted by the departure of some people from their community and by questions that they were raising about John's teaching and the teaching of the apostles generally. This isn't a new thing, of course. Back in the 19th century, there was the rise of higher higher criticism, which questioned the authenticity of texts and facts. Then in the 20th century, there were more questions provoked by two world wars when With death on such a massive scale, it shook people's faith. The churches were emptied as people abandoned the faith, many of them for spiritualism, by the way, which mushroomed as a result of the First World War. By mid-century, churchmen were questioning miracles. Talking about the time when I was growing up uh, as a teenager, churchmen were questioning miracles, denying the resurrection, denying the supernatural, denying, debunking the the authority of Scripture, among other things. And it it became popular for ministers to change their style of teaching so that it was not provocative. So they adopted a hesitant, almost apologetic approach to handling the Word of God Well, John is facing a different set of questions, of course, a different set of issues, but for him, the whole world seems to be on the side of the people who have left. And he's addressing that. He's addressing that because that's caused pain in the hearts of the people who are left, obviously. And he he has to make an apologetic statement. That is, he has to give a, a reason for his own teaching, which has become under the gun from these people. And so in this opening salvo that we looked at last time, he begins by talking about that or what was in the beginning. We learn that this what uh, is something, not just something, but someone. And uh, we notice the parallels between it and the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. Then at the end of that first verse, he talks about the Word of life. That's where we left off last week, the Word of life. The use of the word Word goes back to John chapter, John's gospel chapter 1, in reference to the eternal Word who was face to face with the Father. The reference to life is the doorway into the next verse, 
the life was made manifest, he says. And it's the life that I want to talk about this evening, the life as John introduces it to us here. Life is the most important thing we have right now. All of us in the room, as far as I can tell, are sentient. That is, we have life. We still have a pulse. Our life is very physical. But life is, that kind of life is not the only life that's represented in this room tonight. There's eternal life. There's the life of the Holy Spirit represented in the hearts of men and women here in this room. And were they to lose their physical life tonight, they would not cease to have life. Life abundant, life that is free. So I want to look at this life that John introduces. And I want to look at it from three perspectives. I want to say three things about it. First of all, this life is personal. This life is personal. He begins in verse 1 by using, as I have already indicated, what or that. Uh, that's a rather new, uh, immaterial thing. It's, it's not a personal way of introducing anybody. That. What's that? If I pointed you out and I said to someone, what's that? You wouldn't feel I was thinking very highly of you if I used that expression. But John has gone on to show us that this something at the beginning that we have to unpack is someone because we have heard him, we've seen him with our eyes, we've looked upon, that is, we've looked into him in the sense of working out who he is, we have touched him with our hands. And this one is the word of life. Now, the word in John's gospel, which I think is meant to be echoed here because of the way in which this is framed, similar words in the beginning, from the beginning, the word in John's gospel is, in fact, the personalized word of God who was coming into the world. He corresponds to the eternal wisdom of God. God's word is his wisdom. It's the expression of his eternal wisdom. So we talk about Jesus being the wisdom of God and the Word of God. Actually, we also talk about Him being the power of God. Now, if, if the Word in John's Gospel and by extension here refers to God, the Son, coming into the world, how do we get that into our head? How does something, because a Word is invisible, and the eternal word of God is invisible. He's immense, infinite. He is the one from whom all that is came to exist, and through him all that exists continues to exist. How does he come into the world? Since his presence is already in the world, in everything in the universe sustaining it, because he made it, sustaining it in existence, every microbe, every atom, every person, every planet, everything is being sustained personally in existence by this word through whom all things were made. The answer of John in chap chapter 1 of his gospel is, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
So there you have the background, really, to the message that constitutes the Christian proclamation. And that opening in John's gospel is the background to the neuter relative pronoun that he uses here, what or that, which may refer to the message of the person. It may also refer to the actual stuff of the person, his human nature, his physical existence, because the message that we preach is about a real person, a real person. The Christian message is not an idea or philosophy as such, though philosophy is involved in working out some of Christian teaching, but it's a person. The Christian message is identical with this person. The gospel is identical with Jesus. Hence, with a view to his incarnate state, that is, his human form, John emphasizes that the message of the one who has come into the world who has become flesh has been heard. John heard him. Has been seen. John saw him and John's fellow apostles. And he has been touched. John and the apostles had a real personal relationship with this one who had come into the world. The person that he was and his presence had been verified by every means of self-sense perception available to human beings. And so we come to the punchline at the end of the section that we looked at last Sunday concerning the word of life. The expression can mean the one who is life, or the message that conveys this life to us, or the preaching of the message which tells us about this life. Because it's impossible to separate the whole gospel of which Christ is the center and the sum of it from Jesus personally. So we have to see in the message, the word of life as a message, that Jesus is wrapped up into that, into that message. So this expression then, the word of life, brings these two ideas together. Going back to John chapter 1 in the gospel, it says that the word was made flesh. It says the, the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was face to face with God. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. And it goes on to say this, in him was life. What is the thing you can say about that word is not just a, a concept, it's life. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That life, that living reality that God is is the thing that enlightens every person coming into the world with the law of nature and with a conscience where the law is written in the heart and the conscience of, of every person. And Jesus is that light. In John chapter 11, that's the gospel, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
In John chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and say through Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. And John and Peter and the disciples heard him. They laid eyes on him. They touched the embodiment of the Christian message, the word of life himself, the person of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the Christian message, or we talk about Christian doctrine, or we talk about the gospel, or any of that language, don't be thinking for one moment that we're just talking ideas. This life is personal. Secondly, this life is eternal. It's eternal. Eternal life, which is the very life of God, is brought into the sphere of human experience in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in our day-to-day lives, we take life for granted, physical life. Physical life is defined in terms of certain phenomena, assimilation, waste, reproduction, growth. Life is an animating principle in creatures. Uh, Robert Law records the biblical data on physical life. In Genesis 9, the animating principle of bodily organism is in the blood. In Psalm 36, God is the fountain of life for every creature, for the ant, the worm, the dog, the human person. God is the author of life in every creature. And it is a direct, it is a direct result of God's life-giving breath. When Jesus comes on this scene and he talks about life, it's a new kind of life. This life to be found in Christ. This is John's announcement here in verse 2 in 1 John 1. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. And the word proclaim isn't in the original. There is not even a word that's near proclaim in the original. Uh, This for you, to you, is eternal life, which was with the Father made manifest to us. John and his fellow apostles saw the present personal presence of life when they saw the resurrected Jesus. They were in the upper room. Jesus appeared. And they saw him. And they ate with him. And they touched him. They brushed against him. Is it solid? Oh, will I have to go straight through? Is he a ghost? You can imagine all of these things are going on in their head. And the remarkable thing was that he was alive. In fact, Thomas, Thomas had sussed all of this out. Thomas had worked out that if they were, because he, he missed the first Sunday night, which is a warning for you to miss any Sunday night, because you don't know what you're going to miss. Thomas wasn't there that Sunday night, and so he didn't see Jesus the first time Jesus appeared. So he went the next week, and he went having thought about it all week, and he's worked out in his head, if, if Jesus is actually alive, He's not in the same category as we are. 
He must be God. He must be God. We know this because of his reaction. When Jesus comes into the room, Jesus immediately indicates that he knows exactly what's been going on in Thomas's head, which is scary. And he says to Thomas, look, you wanted to touch me. Put your fingers in the nails. And put your hand in the side, in the wound made by the spear. And Thomas has rehearsed this. It's come upon him that this is the God of Israel. And so the famous lines of the Shema come to his mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Life and immortality were brought to light in the gospel. John Calvin put it like this. Life has been exhibited to us in Christ. And since this is true then, it is an incomparable good. Life is an incomparable good. It should arouse our interest, inflame our desire, and enliven our love of it. Life is what God is in himself. He is the living God. That's said over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The living God. And when John meets Jesus in the vision in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says this to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. Now going back again to 1 John. John says this, The word of life, the Lord, while life was made manifest, and we saw it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The apostle is making clear what, we have been, what has been inferred since verse 1. The life had appeared. Hence, he was seen, heard, touched. The message that we proclaim concerns an embodied person, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And Jesus claims later in John 5, The Son gives life to whomsoever he wills. Throughout John's gospel, the language of testify and witness is used over 40 times, starting with John the Baptist, the apostles who personally were chosen by Jesus to witness what he said and did. And now John says the life appeared, that eternal life that is God himself, that preexisted eternally with the Father, that eternal life. As Jabra puts it, in Jesus Christ, what is eternal and transcendent has become palpably 
imminent, that is, close at hand. The life who is the Son of God is here described as that eternal life which was with the Father. The eternal life that was face to face with the eternal Father. For from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have possessed eternal life in its fullest sense. We as creatures possess life as an animating principle in which inheres all the potentialities and potencies that can develop in a living organism. But eternal life, the life of God, is qualitatively different from physical life. It's a higher quality of life that, that enters in the life of God from the life of God. Eternal life is not any kind of life prolonged ad infinitum. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is one kind of life that is the highest and the divine kind of life. I would add that it it is not aware of any form of duration. The eternity of God is no form of duration. It is simply is. Even when Christ was in the flesh and among us, living in time as a creature, every creaturely hour of his human history belonged to the eternal order. He didn't leave the eternal order of things where everything is present to him, everything in every mind and heart throughout history, and is what is happening to every organism on the face of the planet throughout the history of this universe. Everything is known to him in one, one blink of knowledge. And timelessness, therefore, defines the Trinity of being, for their manner of being constitutes what eternity is. There's no past, no future, only only now to God. Fatherhood, sonship, and love, representing the Holy Spirit, are fully in act all the time in the Godhead. Thomas Aquinas quotes Bothius, an earlier Christian writer, who says, eternity is the simultaneous, that means the all-at-oneness, the simultaneous, complete, and perfect possession of an ending life. An ending life. And for John, the eternal life is the life of God and therefore imperishable. And this life, eternal life, is the summum bonum, that is the highest good, the greatest blessing. And it's held out as the prospect for the believer, for you. And consider this for a moment. What would it mean for you and me to have eternal life? If eternal life is an attribute of God, what does it mean for you and me? to participate in that eternal life, to be in union in Christ with that eternal life. The Western church has been wary of using language that the Eastern church does with abandon of the destiny of the children of God. 
They use the language of deification. Not that we become God, because creatures can't become God. But that we come to share something of God. Eternal life is one of those things. The, change, the unchangingness of God is another. The love of God is another. Caught up into the very life of God, that is our destiny. And we see this will be made even clearer in John as we, we go on. So look out for this. The idea of our union, communion, and participation in Christ. So the life then is personal. The life is eternal. And then thirdly, the life is essential. We read in chapter 4 of 1 John that he sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. It goes on to explain what through him means. By believing in his name. The only begotten Son, that's Jesus, is the eternal incarnate life. And He is an absolute veritable fountain of life. He uses this image in the great day of the feast in John chapter 7, I think it is, where Jesus goes up to to Jerusalem and uh, and, uh, He stands on the great day of the feast and He says uh, that He is... He is the, the, the life of God, like a, a living spring is going to come up from within him. And he offers us the life that he comes to bring. He is a fountain of regenerative power to those who receive him. Life spiritual, life eternal, and ultimately life physical. These bodies will live again. And this life is communicated to human beings by regeneration, that is, by the new birth, which is God's initiative from the beginning to the end. The mediation of life, historic Jesus, then, is grounded in the relation eternally subsisting within the Godhead itself, the Word to the Father and love to the Father and the Son. So life participation in the divine nature is union with God himself. By nature, our state is death, even when we're still enjoying physical life, spiritual death, the separation from God. When a person becomes a believer, they pass from that death to life. In our unconverted natural state, we're averse to the highest good. But we now have a new nature, and that new nature desires it and pursues it. The Christian life is always an experience of salvation from for, from death, for life. And so we are begotten anew with this new birth, which is wholly God's act. We may be responsive to God, but that's only because of the gift God gives us to be responsive as he communicates to us the life and the faith and the hope and the love that we need to respond to him. Any human response then is evidence of God's work within us. Jesus sums up, Jesus sums up the teaching of this little section 
in the words that he uses in his prayer in John 17. When he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Lord, eternal life is not something that we can get our heads around easily this evening. It pushes the boundaries of our knowledge, our intellect, our uh, spiritual apprehension and understanding. And uh, it raises questions. As we've seen, the whole idea of our sharing something of the divine nature. And yet you tell us over and over again, the spirit of glory and of God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And with the Spirit, the Father and the Son dwell with us. We're not alone. All of God is with each one of us. The fullness of God is with each one of us. Without being all divided up, the whole of who God is, is a companion, the indwelling keeper of each one of our hearts and minds and lives so that we will never, we will never be lost because he has chosen us for life, for life that is eternal. In Jesus' name we pray with thankfulness. Amen.